welcome back. This is our fourth episode in the sub-mini-series on the Most Holy Eucharist. Hopefully this will be our last episode as well on this mini-series. We have covered most everything on this board. Certainly that it is the highest of all of the sacraments, that with concomitants we can understand we're not just receiving the body or not just receiving the blood, but every time we receive the Most Holy Host or the Most Precious Chalice, the blood, then we are receiving the body, the blood, the soul, and divinity of Christ, because there are things that are inseparable in the glorified body of Christ. Also, we have spoken about transubstantiation and what that means, and how that is different from consubstantiation, and how that is also different from transformation and other things. We have spoken about the proper form and the proper matter of this holy sacrament. We have also spoken about the principal effects of the Most Holy Eucharist, including loving union with Christ, which is the primary, but also a daily nourishment while we are here on this journey going towards heaven, increase in sanctifying grace, spiritual delight and fervor to help us to do what is right and to follow Christ and the church in all of what they ask of us, as well uh, the effects that are medicinal as well as nourishing, uh, and, and the effects in terms of satisfaction of temporal punishment, as well as how it helps us in relation to other people through service or through offering satisfaction uh, to others, and even any kind of uh, congruent merit, if you have uh, at, at all uh, gone over the Grace sub-miniseries, or the Grace miniseries, which I hopefully will help you to better understand some of these terminologies that I'm using are very much in detail defined in that series. We have also spoken about one part of the minister, and that is the minister of Holy Eucharist, which is different from the minister of Holy Communion. So the Eucharist is a sacrament, and in the transubstantiation, it requires a priest who is the proper minister, and it requires that priest to have the right intentions. It does not require the priest to be in the state of grace. It does not require the priest to be holy. It does not require the priest to be in a good relationship with other priests or his bishop or anything. It requires that he is a priest. Now, it is a great sacrilege for a priest in a state of sin, mortal sin, to offer Mass or uh, to transubstantiate, say these words of institution, at Mass. Because of the importance and the beauty and the precious reality of the sacrament, every priest should always want hands, souls, minds, hearts, bodies that are truly pure to offer the sacrament. Now, because we are weak, unfortunately, this doesn't always happen. But we should always recognize, if I haven't already covered this in one of the other uh, sub-miniseries or in the, the general miniseries of sacrament, sacraments uh, at the beginning of all of these sub-miniseries, that sacraments are not conferred based on, or administered based on, the holiness of the priest. That was actually a heresy of the early church that was taken care of a long time ago. It's called Donatism. Donus, Donatist, Donus, Don, Donatus, uh, was a man who, whatever his name was, was a, was a man who believed that it had to do with the sanctity of the priest, that if the priest was not holy, then the sacraments would not be conferred. And the church denied that entirely. The church recognizes that as a full heresy. That for the sake of the salvation of souls, it is not dependent on the priest. It is dependent upon the authority that has been given to him by the church. And it is dependent upon his, attention, his intention in what he's doing. But it is not based on his holiness or um, the, the, the amount of times that he prays every day or the state of his soul. He can be in mortal sin. He could be one foot 
have one foot in hell already. But if he does those the form with the with the right matter and he has the right intention, that is a sacrament. And although that might sound weird, that is something we should all be very grateful for, because there are a lot of priests that are not holy. I am not a truly holy person. I try to be. I want to be. I desire that. I pray to God that he makes me holier and holier each day. But the reality is that we are all broken. We are all failures. And some much more than others. Regardless, we need to continue to strive. We need to continue to grow in holiness so that we can lead our flocks, of course, to, to holiness. But that's not always the case. But God is able still to use as an instrument, as a tool, for the sake of the sanctification of the flock, a shepherd that is wayward. A shepherd that is not living the way that he should. He can still be used to help other people to get to heaven by offering the sacrament of confession and by giving mass and by doing all kinds of things that are helpful for the soul. So thank God the, the salvation of others is not entirely based on the sanctity of priests. A lot of priests lead a lot of people to hell. That is a reality. That is something that many saints have discussed and talked about. Ad nauseum. That is true. But as far as, far as the sacraments are concerned, those are not based on the holiness of the priest. They are based on the fact that the, the work has been worked. In other words, that the form and the matter and the intention by the proper minister has been performed. When it comes to the minister of holy communion, though, right? we're not talking about a separate sacrament. We're talking about the sacrament itself, the Eucharist, or the reception of the sacrament, which is holy communion. The sacrament itself is just the reception of the holy sacrament. So the sacrament is the Eucharist, the minister is the priest. Only a priest, of course this includes bishops who are only bishops by way of being a priest. They are the ones that are able to transubstantiate, to consecrate bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. But the minister of Holy Communion is different. If we read from Paul and Prowse who quote uh, the Tridentine Council, or the Council of Trent, uh, perhaps is, it's more regularly known. It says, Tridentine Council, which defines... As to the reception of the sacrament, it is always a custom in the church of God that laymen should receive the communion from priests, but that priests, when celebrating, should communicate themselves. In other words, they don't receive it from somebody else. They self-communicate, as it's called, or they give themselves the Eucharist. Which custom, as coming down from an apostolic tradition, in other words, it's something all the way from the apostles, ought with justice and reason to be maintained. St. Thomas Aquinas says that, the dispensing of Christ's body belongs to the priest for three reasons. First, because he consecrates in the person of Christ. In other words, as I mentioned, I am operating in the person of Christ the head. And as the consecration of Christ's body belongs to the priest, so likewise does the dispensing belong to him. So, because I am operating in the person of Christ the head, as well because uh, I am dispensing that which is something that I am the one that is administering. I am the one that transubstantiates. It's Christ in me, of course. I'm not trying to take overstep my bounds of, of authority or something of the sort. I am simply a tool. However, it is the church that has chosen me and every other priest has called them uh, in no way of something that we've done or merited on our own, but has called us to give to us the authority of Christ in order to operate in the name of Christ and in the person of Christ the head. And therefore, we are able to transubstantiate the bread and the wine into the body and blood of Christ, or to forgive sins and all of these other things. Therefore, it is also the mind to distribute this, is what is being said here. Secondly, because the priest is the appointed intermediary between God and the people, hence it belongs to him to offer the people's gifts to God. So it belongs to him to deliver consecrated gifts from God to the people. 
Thirdly, because out of reverence towards the sacrament, only consecrated hands should touch it. And that is what happens if you've ever gone to a consecration of a priest versus a deacon. A deacon is different. If you've gone to the consecration of a priest, it is the hands that are consecrated. And it is those hands that are rightfully made to distribute. However, in the past, for many, many years, the ordinary minister of Holy Communion was a priest. Now, Canon Law 910, I believe, says that the ordinary ministers of Holy Communion are deacon, priest, and the bishop. And therefore, a deacon is rightfully an ordinary minister of Holy Communion, as the church states. Even though their hands are not consecrated, they have been ordained. And they are ordained for the sake of service, and therefore the church has seen fit to make them an ordinary minister of Holy Communion. Even though in the past, when it was only a priest that was the ordinary minister, deacons were still able to in extraordinary circumstances, when it was out of necessity because 3,000 people came to Mass this day. We need somebody else to help, etc. Extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion. This is a bit of a, of a hot-button issue. It's something that a lot of people have strong opinions on, and I'm no different from this. But all that we need to cover, I think, in this is to understand the language. A lot of people call them Eucharistic ministers. This is not the case. We are talking about an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion. Again, we use the extraordinary in that it is not what is ordinary. They do not have an ordination. They do not have an office in the church, the authority in the church, that has given them the right to be the ones that distribute Holy Communion. They are always extraordinary in that they are always those that are used only for the sake of need when the need arises, not to be used ordinarily and regularly. Those are big differences. Unfortunately, now many use extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion very ordinarily. And part of that is because of the need. So for instance, in the past, when we had many more Catholics and many more priests, it was easier to have two or three priests that were stationed at a parish. And therefore, when one priest would give Mass, the other two would come down for Holy Communion to help to distribute Communion. Now, depending on where you're at in the country, you might have three parishes or five parishes to one priest. So he doesn't have the ability to have other priests or other deacons or something come and help out. And therefore, the lack of priests has made a, a situation to where there is more of a need at times for extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion. However, the church is very clear, specifically in the document of uh, Sacramentum Caritatis. I think that is right. I think that's what it's called, but it's called, it's called something, I'm sorry, Redemptionis Sacramentum. I wasn't even close. Redemptionis Sacramentum, which is the sacrament of redemption. This says, quote, Indeed, the extraordinary minister of Holy Communion may administer Holy uh, Communion only when the priest and deacon are lacking. When the priest is prevented by weakness or advanced age or some other genuine reason, or when the number of faithful Coming to communion is so great that the very celebration of Mass would be unduly prolonged. This, however, is to be understood in such a way that a brief prolongation, considering the circumstances and the culture of the place, is not at all a sufficient reason. Is not at all a sufficient reason. So the Church herself, in this document, Redemptionis Sacramentum, is speaking about the care that we should have for the sacrament of the Eucharist and the way that things should be done in relation to this sacrament and specifically in the distribution of the sacrament, that is Holy Communion, then very much we should have ordinary ministers to distribute Holy Communion. 
It is not a free fall. It is not a time to get a bunch of people to participate. Oh, I want Sally and Phil and Joseph to participate, and so let's make them all extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion. That doesn't make any sense. They are to be used when necessary. And oftentimes we can add just five more minutes of Mass and allow the priest and the deacon to take care of the distribution of Holy Communion for the sake of making sure that people understand there is parts, there's roles in the Mass, that there is importance in, of, of the laity and that they have a true part in the Mass and that their participation is not based on how many people they distribute Holy Communion to or how many jobs and roles that they have in Mass. Their part is important in that they are very much a part of the Mass in the way in which they participate primarily spiritually in their souls but also exteriorly in the way in which they respond, etc. But it is not based on how many readings they read or, or, or other things of this sort. We've gotten away from a lot of that, and so a lot of abuses have come in. So first, they are not called Eucharistic ministers, because there is only one minister of the Eucharist, ordinary minister of the Eucharist. That is a priest, not even a deacon. Again, we're talking about this transubstantiation. To say that a, a layperson is uh, a, a minister of the Eucharist is to say that they have some ability to make bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. That's wrong. They are extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion because they do have the ability in urgent cases and when it is deemed appropriate according to what the documents of the church say, etc., then yes, they are able to be a part of the distribution of the Eucharist, which is Holy Communion to the people, but only in certain circumstances, and only at certain times, and only as extraordinary ministers, not as the ordinary means. That is, I think, something that many people would agree with, because it is something that the church says. It's not my opinion. It's just that nobody's really ever taught it. And I think a lot of priests, unfortunately, at times, are willing to allow these kinds of abuses to take to, to take root as well as to expand. And it's tough. I, I, I certainly understand it is not an easy thing to tell people that we should, we should reevaluate the way that we're doing this according to what the church says. Um, nobody wants to tell somebody, you need to sit down or don't help out here. You can help out in some other way, etc. But at the same time, for the sake of what the church says, if we're just going to throw that out to do what we want or to allow people to participate in the way that they see fit, even though they don't truly understand what the church is asking of them, etc., then not only are we allowing abuses into the, into the sacred liturgy, but we're also cheapening our faith. We are Catholic precisely because we have a church, a mother that teaches and feeds and nourishes and helps and guides and directs us, rather than doing what we want as, our, as we're some kind of autonomous uh, owners of our own church and our own uh, way things are done in our own masses, etc. No, the mass, this is a gift. This is something that I humbly receive in, in, in gratitude and hopefully just do to the best that I can in, in the way in which the church wants me to. Obedience is one of the most significantly important parts of being a priest, but it's also one of the most important parts of being a lay person. It's through obedience that we get to heaven. It's through obedience, recognizing God has authority over me, recognizing the church has authority over me, recognizing the bishop has authority over me, recognizing the priest has authority over you, recognizing all of these different hierarchical structures of authority within the church these are necessary, these are important, and these prevent us from falling apart and breaking into thousands and thousands of different churches that eventually will uh, cease to exist one way or the other. So thank God for Holy Mother Church. I digress. Let us move to our last point, and this is worthy communion. 
Worthy communion consists in a baptized person in the state of grace with some rudimentary understanding of the Eucharist receiving the sacrament with the right intention. Plus, the person under normal circumstances must refrain from food or drink at least one hour before receiving Holy Communion. Unless, for instance, in extraordinary circumstances, somebody needs to take a medication and they have to take it with food or something of this sort. But one hour before Holy Communion, keep that in mind, it's not, it should be at least, I, I think, but what do I know? It's one hour before Holy Communion, not one hour before Mass. And a lot of people think that it's before Mass, and that's great. They're just, their fast is a little bit longer. But one hour before Holy Communion, if you have a priest that gets a little lippy in the homily, in other words, it's you know, going on and on, that could be five minutes before Mass is your fast. You could eat a Snickers bar six minutes before Mass starts and still get in the hour fast, depending on the situation. Um, we can do more. I would encourage you, have a longer fast. It used to be from midnight, and then it moved to like three hours before, and then it moved to an hour before Holy Communion. Uh, we can do more. And if you're able to, great. If not, if it's a medical condition or something of that sort, do what you need to do uh, to take care of yourself, your soul, your body, etc. But what we are able to do, we should do. This sacrament is based on the love of God. It is the love of God given to us in, in, in physical form, in essence. We should also, in the way that we receive it, in the way that we approach it, in the way that we desire it, we should also make sure that we are making acts of love in that way. And fasting beforehand, this is a type of act of love for the sake, in that we don't want to be coming to Mass and praying on a full stomach. We don't want in any way to cause a problem of, of possibly throwing up. And if we've just eaten something beforehand and we ate too much, etc., this could possibly happen. We don't want a bunch of other junk in our mouth and stuck to our teeth when we're trying to receive the most holy body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord into our bodies. These are the kinds of things and, and common reasons why we have a, a fast in general, as well as the act of love and the, the, the self-denial and these kinds of things. To receive worthily in the state of sin, excuse me, to receive unworthily in the state of sin is to, quote, eat and drink judgment upon yourself, end quote. This is a quote from the scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 29. He makes it very clear. If you do not discern well, your state, whether it be in grace or not, and you approach the Holy Eucharist, either in the state of grace or knowing that you're in the state of grace, this is very problematic. It is a sacrilegious communion. It is very sinful, in fact, as well. St. Thomas Aquinas even explains this. He says, One sin can be said to be graver than another in two ways. First of all, essentially, second accidentally. Essentially in regard to its species, in other words, there are kinds of sins, sins against God versus sins against the neighbor and these kinds of things, which is taken from its object, in other words, the act itself. And so a sin is greater according as that against which it is committed, is greater. And since Christ's Godhead is greater than his humanity, and his humanity greater than the sacraments of his humanity, Hence, it is that those are the gravest sins which are committed against the Godhead, such as unbelief or blasphemy, etc. And keep in mind, saying, oh my God, in some kind of uh, emotional way or reaction where you're not praying, where you're not giving reverence to God's name, that is a type of blasphemy. I'm not suggesting it's of the greatest or gravest forms of, of blasphemy. I am saying that we need to get away from this. Although it is very common in movies and television shows and all kinds of other things, 
Anytime we say Jesus, or anytime we say God, or anytime we say Lord, or any other thing indicating our Heavenly Father, or His holy saints, or His holy church in any way, it must be done out of reverence. Otherwise, we are taking in a sacrilegious way, in a blasphemous way, depending on what it is and what it includes, uh, our, our Heavenly Father, or the saints, or the Blessed Virgin, and other things. And that is very problematic, especially when it's from us, who receive with that same tongue that we're blaspheming the Most Holy Eucharist on it. Sacraments of His uh, humanity. Okay, against the high, such as unbelief and blasphemy. The second degree of gravity, so the first is against the Godhead, example, unbelief or blasphemy. The second degree of gravity is held by those sins which are committed against his humanity, such as the kiss of Judas when he kissed him as he was betraying him, or the crucifixion, etc. The third place comes sins against the sacraments, which belong to Christ's humanity. And after these are the other sins committed against mere creatures. End quote. Unworthy communion, being a sin against the greatest of the sacraments, is no doubt a grave sacrilege. So we must be very careful. We must discern very well and do the best that we can to get to confession every time we have a mortal sin. I want to emphasize very clearly that we do not receive Holy Communion in a state of mortal sin. And I know I've been saying that, but I want to emphasize that greatly because, unfortunately, many people are under this false notion that as long as you try to get to confession and you couldn't, and you're in mortal sin, and you're going to go to Mass, and you don't have time to get to confession anymore, then you just make an act of contrition, and then you go to confession, and everything's fine. Let's debunk that entirely right now. Firstly, a quote, the Council of Trent. Quote, if anyone saith that faith alone is a sufficient preparation for receiving the sacrament of the Most Holy Eucharist, let him be anathema, cursed. The same council commands that whoever is guilty of mortal sin must cleanse his soul in the sacrament of penance before approaching the holy table. That is from Paul and Proust. Quote, from the, sacrament of, uh, uh, from the council of, of, of Trent. And lest so great a sacrament be received unworthily, this holy synod ordains and declares that sacramental confession when a confessor may be had, is of necessity to be made beforehand by those whose conscience is burdened with mortal sin, how contrite soever they may think themselves. End quote. In canon law, it is true that it does say that if somebody who cannot get to confession and is going to Mass can receive Holy Communion after making a perfect, an, an act of contrition. The problem is that it says only in grave circumstances which is almost never, I don't even know that I could think of one, go to confession, receive confession, be pure as you possibly can, recognize enough of the sanctity and the power and the goodness of this sacrament to ensure that you are in no way ever, even when you really long for it and want it, ever receiving the body, the blood, the soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ into an unworthy vessel. We are all unworthy in, a, in, in, in one way, but it is God's sanctifying grace in us that makes us worthy, that allows us and permits us to be able to receive these, gra these graces and these sacraments. And so always ensure that never would we ever take this most holy body and blood, the sacrifice made of our Lord made present here before us, and spit on it by taking unworthily the body of our God. 
always do the best that you can in examining your conscience to make sure that you are prepared well to receive this Holy Communion. God is good. He is merciful. He is greater than blasphemy. He is greater than unbelief. He is greater than sacrilegious communions. He is greater than all of this. I in no way mean to, to make anybody or cause anybody to despair uh, of, of the mercy of God. Never. As long as I draw breath, salvation is possible for me, for anybody else that has that same breath. However, that does not mean, though, that we sweep under the rug the true necessary realities of our faith, specifically when they are uh, in relation to sacraments and the sanctity of God and protecting the, 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 the goodness of what God gives us. Prepare well, not just in examining yourself, but I mean prepare well, come early to Mass. Make sure that you kneel down, if you're able to kneel down, and ensure that you are doing everything that you can to open your heart so that just as you are preparing your body by fasting for an hour before Holy Communion, you are also preparing your soul and your mind to be attentive to the best that you can. It's going to be hard and you're going to be distracted and that happens and that's human. Don't get mad. Don't get frustrated. Just get back to focusing on God and understand He knows your weaknesses. He is pleased by the desire that you have to be focused on Him. He is pleased by the fight that you continue to have in Mass by continuously bringing yourself back to attention. That is pleasing to God when it's done from love. And therefore, we are able to please God even when we are distracted. We are able to prepare ourselves and our souls for receiving Holy Communion in a greater way, in a more worthily way, even when we are distracted to some degree or another. Paul and Proust also say, to quote, quote, The Mass is essentially identical with the sacrifice at the cross. Because the sacrificial gift and the sacrificing priest are the same in both, Christ, and the only difference between them is in the manner of offering. Christ is offered in a bloody way on the cross. Christ is offered in an unbloodied way in the Mass, then we need to recognize the importance of what we are engaged in at the Mass, but also at kind of the crowning glory of that Mass, which is the, the, the transubstantiation, and the fulfillment of that crowning glory, which is the reception of that sacrifice made present there on the altar. So the sacrifice is completed there on the altar, but it is, in a sense, given its proper uh, purpose when that sacrifice is actually received in Holy Communion. So much has been given to us by God. Cherish it. Love it. Continue to thank Him for it. Go to adoration as much as you can. We are told uh, by multiple people that the power of our prayers is something that is greater when it's done in the presence of the Eucharist. So if we are able to pray in adoration or just getting to a church, um, maybe not even an exposition where, where we see the monstrance, but maybe just where the tabernacle is, then we are able to pray in a way where we are more centered and more focused on God, uh, or at least it's easier to be so and to do so. We have a type of power in praying before the most uh, true presence of our God in the Holy Eucharist. And so get to wherever you can in order to do so. And some even speak about how the prayers that are offered right after receiving Holy Communion. So let's take the rest of Mass and then let's also take 15 minutes, let's say, after Mass, that those are the minutes of your prayer to be heard most readily. Those are when God is, let's say, most attentive, even though that's not the proper way to speak about God, but the, He is most attentive to our prayers in those moments. And so take every bit of advantage from Him. Just everything that you can get out of those. Be praying for everybody, for the salvation of your spouse, for the changing conversion of your own soul, for the overcoming of all kinds of attachments, for the sanctity of the world, for the end to abortion and in vitro fertilization and euthanasia, and for the end to uh, 
artificial contraception in, 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 amongst people for, 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 for the, the fervor of the faith to grow, for the flame of faith to be fanned amongst all Catholics everywhere throughout all of the corners of the world. There's so much that you can do, so many people you can reach, so much power you can put forth for the sake of good and crushing evil into the world through communion and through what you do in front of the Eucharist. Thank God for everything that he has done. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Holy Father, we adore you. We appreciate you for everything that you have done in giving us your Son, but also and specifically in this most holy sacrament of love where you demonstrate to us just how willing you are to give your entire self for the sake of our salvation, for the sake of us, just to be more united to you, to know you better, to receive you entirely. Thank you for the Eucharist. I ask pardon and reparation for every time that we as priests or any of the laity have ever committed sacrilege against your Eucharist by mishandling, by neglect, or by any other way. I ask that reparation be made, and I ask that you help us to live a way uh, in this life that is so reverent, that is so devout in our relationship to the Eucharist that we are able to give you glory and pleasure simply in the way in which we are, simply in our own dispositions toward the Eucharist. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you all.